Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the second hour of The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with the 2020 Lead. is the final five days until Election Day, and today both President Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden are in the critical state of Florida, a state that President Trump won narrowly in 2016. It has a massive 29 electoral votes. Trump and Biden today making their closing arguments to American voters during a surge across the nation in new coronavirus cases. The difference in the candidates' events today reflecting the deep divide over coronavirus and whether or not it's important to heed the advice of medical and health professionals. Biden holding in drive-in events. And Trump, who ignores what his own health experts say is prudent and safe, is holding packed rallies with no masks required, no distancing, and continued evidence that his rally spread the virus. And as CNN's Ryan Noble, Nobles reports for us now, more than 7 million ballots have already been cast in Florida's early voting. In Florida, President Trump facing a battleground on two fronts. I'm thrilled to be here in my, our home state, Florida. Florida is a pivotal swing state where polls show a neck and neck race and 29 electoral votes up for grabs. When we win, Florida wins and America wins. It's very simple. And a state where coronavirus cases are surging with both federal and state government leaders giving mixed messages on how to handle the virus. As we try to make sure that we come into contact with other people, uh, making sure that we socially distance as much as possible, wearing those masks when, uh, when we can't, uh, we strongly encourage that. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows continuing to encourage Americans to wear masks and social distance. But at the same time, the Trump team continues to ignore the threat posed by the campaign's massive rallies with no attempt to social distance and few people wearing masks. Sending Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany out in a campaign capacity to tout the White House response to the virus. You can vote on Joe Biden where you will be locked down. Your schools will be closed. Your churches will be closed. You won't have social gatherings. It will be a lockdown versus President Trump where, where we are safely reopening this country. Meanwhile, the president himself seemingly ignoring the rising case count is still downplaying the threat and blaming the media and Democrats for hyping the reality of more than 200,000 Americans who have died. There would have been two million lives. It's incredible the job that we've done and that the American people have done. But it is Florida where top COVID advisor Dr. Scott Atlas was pushing Governor Ron DeSantis to slow down testing as cases surged here. Governor DeSantis recently lifted all statewide restrictions related to coronavirus. This as President Trump continues to promise a new vaccine will be ready soon. And a safe vaccine is coming very quickly. You're going to have it momentarily that eradicates the virus and we're rounding the turn regardless. You know, but the president's optimism is not shared by many experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has a dim view of the country's effort to contain the virus. Where are we, Tony? How we're not in a good place. 
And as become practice with the president at these rallies, he is once again touting his administration's response to the pandemic, telling the crowd here in Florida that the country is rounding the corner. But the stark reality of the coronavirus pandemic could be seen just a few hundred yards from where the president was standing here in Tampa Bay on the campus of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Stadium, a COVID testing drive up site. This as Florida recorded 4000 new cases of the virus for the third day in a row. Jake. Yeah, there's no health official, no respected health official that says we're turning the corner. None at all. We're actually heading in the wrong direction, as you noted. Ryan, thank you so much. This afternoon, Joe Biden rallied in the Democratic stronghold of Broward County, Florida. He promised the crowd that if he can win Florida next week, he will win the presidential election. CNN's Arlette Science is in Tampa for us now, where, where Joe Biden will speak in just a few hours. Arlette, we heard Biden gave a very targeted speech earlier this afternoon, clearly tailored to the voters. He still thinks he can sway in Florida. Tell us more. Yeah, Jay, Joe Biden really targeting that Democratic stronghold of Broward County, but also trying to appeal to Latino voters, a critical voting block in this battleground state that he's trying to improve his standing with. And in fact, his campaign is planning on holding about 40 events between today and Election Day geared towards Latino voter turnout. Biden, in some polls, has underperformed where Hillary Clinton was with Latinos here in the state. And that is something that his campaign is trying to work on in this final stretch. You heard him in Broward. County appealing directly to Cuban and Venezuelan voters, saying that he is someone who will fight for democracy uh, across the board. And Biden also there in that Democratic stronghold really focused on driving up that voter turnout, trying to run up at the score in an area like Broward County. And he talked about how important Florida will be in this year's election. Take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, the heart and soul of this country is at stake. Right here in Florida, it's up to you. You hold the key. If Florida goes blue, it's over. It's over. It's time to stand up, take back our democracy. We can do this. We can be better than what we've been. We can be who we are at our best. As I said, the United States of America, there's nothing beyond our capacity, I promise you. Now, Biden will be here in Tampa in just a short while, about a, a little over 10 miles from where President Trump held his rally earlier today. These events are starkly different in, in how they are held. You know, the president has those not socially distanced, maskless rallies here in Tampa. Biden will be holding one of those drive-in style events as he is once again trying to present that contrast when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. But here in Florida, this is a state that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily need to win. But a win for Biden here in Florida would make it much more difficult for President Trump to get reelection in November. Jake. All right. Arlette Signs in uh, Tampa. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in some journalists to talk about this. Uh, Sungmin Kim and Melanie Zanona. Uh, right now, uh, Sungmin, let me start with you. Florida going through a surge of coronavirus cases, along with the vast majority of the entire United States. Monmouth is out with a new Florida poll this afternoon saying that 48 percent say they trust Biden better to handle the pandemic, 38% Trump, 10% equally. Might this be a determining factor as to, as to who wins the state? Oh, certainly. Not only this state, but so many other states throughout the nation that are these key 
battlegrounds. We know that the coronavirus pandemic, and particularly the president's handling of it, have been the, the major issue of the campaign. It is why it has been hard for the president to turn this into kind of a, a dueling uh, a dueling campaign of two campaign visions, because so much of this uh, campaign season has been a referendum on his handling of the pandemic. And what's interesting, too, about the Florida polling is that Biden has kept a pretty uh, steady lead with seniors in the state. We know that the senior demographic, particularly in Florida, is something that has broken for President Trump in the past. But his Florida, Biden's strength in Florida, it's helped is being buoyed by the senior support. And you have to imagine that the coronavirus, which we know disproportionately affects the older, older population, may have something to do with that. That's right. But but uh, Biden also has some struggles, uh, Melanie, uh, with Latino voters uh, in in Florida. He's underperforming in polls where Hillary Clinton was. Now, Hillary Clinton did better uh, with Latino voters and still lost Florida. And, and Biden is doing better with seniors, as Sung Min uh, notes. Um, but this is a real area of concern for his campaign. It absolutely is. I mean, Democrats on and off Capitol Hill have privately been expressing a lot of these concerns, saying, was the outreach a little bit too late? You know, there's a Telemundo poll that just came out today, actually, that shows, yes, Trump is behind the polls with Hispanic voters when it comes to Biden, but Biden is underperforming when it comes to Hillary Clinton, and that is a huge problem for him. Uh, Trump is trying to eat into his margins. He's not necessarily trying to win the Hispanic vote in Florida, but the president is just trying to take away those votes from Biden. Uh, so it's really crucial here that he can juice out turnout, bring out the vote, and hunt for every vote he can, especially because uh, Hispanic voters make up about 20% of the electorate in Florida. Yeah, and they're all over the map in terms of their ideology, uh, in terms of, you have the, the Cuban-American voters in, in, the, in the South and Venezuelan-American voters, and then you have the Puerto Rican uh, voters uh, in, in the center uh, of the state. Uh, Sung-min, uh, Biden is running an ad in Florida and other states in which he promises to sign an executive order to form a task force focused on reuniting the more than 500 uh, migrant children who were separated from their families and have not been reunited with them. Um, this is, seems to be uh, uh, trying to play into this this message of empathy. Uh, definitely. And um, we saw how this has been. I mean, this has been one of the biggest dark marks of the Trump administration, the child separation policy that was roundly denounced. And this inspector's general report noting more than 500 children still have not been reunited with uh, with their parents. And Biden is pointing out something that uh, he can do on day one. You know, you can't repeal a law on day one. You can't pass the law on day one, but you can issue some executive orders. So you see how uh, the vice, former vice president is really prioritizing this issue. And this came up in the debate and the final debate between Biden and Trump, where uh, Vice President Biden really went after the Trump administration on the child separation policy. And what was interesting, too, to me, too, in that same debate, Biden recognized or acknowledged the, uh, the shortcomings of the Obama administration. He acknowledged that they did not get immigration reform done. He has come under criticism from Latino activists for be, for Obama being the so-called deporter in chief. So you do see in all these little places where Biden has had to make up ground with that critical Latino vote. And, and Melanie, a Democratic super PAC uh, funded by former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is pouring $10 million into Texas and Ohio. Now, a week ago, a top advisor to this group said they had no plans to invest money into either state, either Texas or Ohio, saying they're all f about Florida. But that advisor says today, quote, Biden has a shot in both places. It's too compelling not to. Do you agree? 
I mean, Democrats have been really putting pressure on the party to spend more in Texas, and absolutely it is in play. Not only is the presidential race tightening, but there's also a Senate seat up for grabs. There's about a dozen House races. Repu uh, Democrats also have a chance to take the Texas House, which would be a major deal. And the state really has been going under undergoing a political um, evolution over the last few years, not just because of changing demographics, but also a distaste for Trump in the suburbs. There's also been an influx from states like California and other states moving into Texas. And so Democrats really see their political fortunes improving. But that being said, I think there's still a lot of reluctance by some Democrats to invest too heavily in there. You know, you'll see Biden's not campaigning there in the final stretch. I think a lot of Democrats are still haunted by 2016, and they don't want to take those critical must-win states like Michigan and Wisconsin for granted. That's right. Sungman Kim and Melanie Zanona, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. No masks, no social distancing, and a whole lot of cheering and yelling. Do all those Trump rallies really put people at greater risk for coronavirus? A CNN investigation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's up next. Plus, U.S. hospitals at a breaking point with doctors in one state preparing to start rationing care. Stay with us. In our national lead today, the United States is facing an increasingly dire situation regarding the coronavirus pandemic. The country added nearly 80,000 new infections just yesterday, the third highest number of the pandemic. The virus killed nearly 1,000 Americans yesterday, nearly 1,000 as the average number of deaths begins to creep back up. All this as the White House Coronavirus Task Force warns of unrelenting broad community spread, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. There's going to be a whole lot of pain in this country with regard to additional cases and hospitalizations and deaths. We are on a very difficult trajectory. We are going in the wrong direction. This is the hardest point in this pandemic right now, the next two months. We'll cross 100,000 infections at some point in the next couple of weeks, probably. We might do it this week. He's talking 100,000 new infections a day. Here's the graph. Spring surge, summer surge, now this. The country averaging well over 70,000 new cases every day right now. Record territory and climbing even higher. It's true that testing has gone up since October 1st by 14%, which is great. But new cases have gone up by over 60%. So it's not just testing. It's a lot more virus. And this virus is everywhere. We continue to see unrelenting broad community spread in the Midwest, Upper Midwest and West, says the White House Coronavirus Task Force's latest report. Kansas and South Dakota just logged record daily case counts and four days in a row. Wisconsin has broken its record for most COVID patients in the hospital, now forced to use overflow facilities. The hospitalizations have more than doubled in the last month. We've got this situation that is clearly out of control right now in the state of Wisconsin. Better news? Immunity post-infection might last at least five months, according to a new study which found that 90% of the recovered maintain a stable antibody response. This is essential for effective vaccine development, says the author of that study. And now we're told Medicare and Medicaid will cover the cost of a vaccine if and when we get one. Meanwhile, unrelenting spread of the virus and a president still not taking it seriously. You have to eat through the mask. It's a... This is the greatest political failure since the Vietnam War, probably. And we've killed five times as many people. The vi I mean, it's unbelievable. The virus is no longer the enemy. 
we are the enemy, our friends, our neighbors, our politicians. Right now, not a single state in the nation has fewer new cases this week than last. Not even one is headed in the right direction. I mean, take Florida. About a month ago, it was doing great. The governor was saying we expect to do a full Super Bowl in February. Not anymore. Now the NFL is looking at perhaps just 20% capacity in that stadium in Tampa and masks all around. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Joining me now is the chief medical officer at the University of Utah Hospital, Dr. Tom Miller. Dr. Miller, uh, thanks for joining us. Utah just reported its highest weekly average of new cases. What are you seeing in the hospital? We are seeing rising cases in the hospital, about double the rate that we saw at our last peak. Thanks for having me back on again. When we last spoke, we were at our first peak back in July, and it's double where we were then. So we expect rates to continue to rise over the next couple of weeks, but we are safe and we have enough beds and staff to manage the patients currently. There are some Utah hospitals that warned warned this week that that if COVID hospitalizations continue to rise at the rate they're rising, they may have to start rationing care. Um, Your hospital hit ICU capacity almost two weeks ago, I think. How is capacity now? We are at about 90% capacity. We've never run out of ICU beds. And I would make the point that an ICU bed is only as good as the staff, doctors and nurses that are helping the patients. And so we have enough doctors and nurses. We're doing okay. We're managing right now. We are not at the level of crisis standards of care. We would need to have another doubling of our case rate now. So we prepared. We have plenty of equipment. We have bed space available. It's staffed up to make new ICU beds, so we're doing okay. But if we get beyond double where we are now, then we're going to be in a little bit more trouble. But that's down the road. We're okay right now. We're over seven months into this pandemic, and obviously most most models uh, – have predicted that there would be a second wave about right now. Um, do you think uh, your hospital and local leadership, your governor, the president, did you, do you have enough to prepare you? Was done enough done to prepare you and other frontline workers for the surge? Jake, we did. We took it very seriously back in March when this started, and we saw all the things that were happening on the East Coast. So we collected and prepared by making, having enough uh, protective equipment. We actually even built equi- uh, protective equipment on campus here. We have a great innovative medical team that helps us build equipment. So we are staffed and we have enough equipment and enough beds and enough ventilators and enough nurses and physicians to get us through to about double where we are now before we really have to start bringing in the other healthcare providers from other settings, outside Dr. settings, M- amateur settings. Well, Sorry. Dr. Miller, what, what do you want what do you want Utahns and the American people and, and any political leaders who are listening, what, what do you want them to know? What do you want them to do so that things don't keep getting as bad as they're getting? So as I had said on our last interview, basically, if people will take the masking seriously, especially when indoors, when together in groups, when going out to do things, shopping, whatever we need to do to fulfill our lives, to stay at work, to stay employed, wear masks. Being employed, being uh, out in the public is not contraindicated at this point. If we wear a mask, we will cut the the rate of infection and we'll get through this. If we are not wearing masks, we will continue to see these cases rise and our hospitals reach capacity. But I'm confident that the citizens of Utah and the United States working together can enforce each other's willpower to wear masks and protective equipment and we'll get through this. That's the message that we continue to push. 
So. All right. That's an optimistic message. I think we can. I don't know that I don't know that we will. Dr. Tom Miller, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up next to CNN Investigation, coronavirus and President Trump's rallies. Do these rallies lead to a greater risk of infection? Stay with us. Some breaking news for you. Two people who attended President Trump's rally in North Carolina last Wednesday have tested positive for coronavirus. President Trump has, of course, been holding campaign rallies in COVID hotspots as if the virus didn't exist with large crowds and no masks required. This week alone, President Trump has gathered supporters in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Arizona, and today in Florida. And as CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta reports for us now, these new cases in North Carolina are hardly an isolated event. All you hear is COVID, 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 COVID. At rallies like this, Dr. Tom Inglesby is less focused on the speaking and more on the crowds of people listening. There seem to be hundreds or thousands of people closely, closely standing together for a prolonged period of time without masks, lots of yelling and um, shouting. Inglesby is director for the Center of Health Security at Johns Hopkins, and he's concerned about the rallies the rallies really do pose high risks for transmission. But I wanted to better understand what that meant. So CNN investigated what happened at 17 recent Trump rallies, specifically looking at infection rates in the counties where the rallies took place four weeks before and four weeks after, and then also comparing them to the corresponding rates at the state level. The results were startling. 82% of the time, the rate of new cases in the county jumped after President Trump's visit. More than half the time, the county rate of new cases grew faster than the state's rate. For example, September 12th, Minden, Nevada. In the month going into that rally, cases had begun to fall. But fast forward four weeks, and the rate of new cases in the county skyrocketed by 225 percent, far outpacing the 74 percent increase the state experienced. Or September 18th, Bemidji, Minnesota. Rates of infection were already climbing in the month before the rally. By the day of the rally, the rate of infection was 6.36 for every 100,000 people in the county, about half the rate of Minnesota. But a month after the rally, the rate of infection in the county had jumped more than 385% and quickly bypassed the state's rate of infection. Those places are already going to be concerned about rising rates of hospitalization, increasing risk of community transmission. We have had no problem whatsoever. It's outside. It is true that being outdoors is far safer than being indoors. But take a look at how the virus leaves the nose and the mouth, like a puff of smoke, sitting so close, no mask, and the risk rises dramatically. None of these in and of themselves are a strong barrier to spread, but if you take them all together, they would help to, to decrease the risk. Here's another way to think about it. If you attend a gathering like this, according to new research in most places in the United States, there is now a 99% chance the virus is attending right alongside with you. And now at least 70,000 times a day, the virus is finding a new home inside one of us. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, it's remarkable what you found. 82% of the time, the rate of new cases jumped after President Trump's visit to any specific county. Did, did this surprise you? 
Um, well, we knew the numbers were going up in, in many of these places. I think what surprised me was just how out of proportion the numbers went up in those particular areas, those particular counties, even compared to the surrounding counties in the rest of the state. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. It's very hard to contact Trace Jake right now because you've got 70,000 newly infected people every day. So looking at this sort of data on a, on a, on a pretty hyper-local level, I thought was quite, quite revealing in terms of just the impact of these, these types of large gatherings. Yeah, and of course, just in terms of contact tracing, you and I were talking months ago about all the unemployed people, and it wouldn't be wouldn't it be great if the Trump administration launched a Manhattan project yeah. to put these people to work by doing the contact tracing that they're not doing. When the cameras pan out to these crowds at the Trump and Pence rallies, you see so many people not wearing masks, a, a vast majority. How would these numbers theoretically change if they were all congregating, but everyone was wearing a mask. Well, I, you know, first of all, I think there's no question that masks are, are very beneficial. Now, there's all sorts of data. We've shown data on your show so many times, look in different models, project forward, even the model that the White House often cites, the IHME model. They say 100,000 lives could be saved by February if 95% of the country wore masks. So there's no question. But Jake, you know, I think the second part of your question is, is really important here. These rallies should not be happening. Right? I think a lot of times people say, well, I wore masks, and therefore it's all okay. The mask is not a panacea. Let me just show that video again of, of what the virus looks like. And, and if you think about this, um, you know, if we could see the virus, I think we would behave a lot differently. But say you're in the rally. The mask helps a lot, but if you're clustered closely together with people, you're sitting there for a long period of time, you imagine that viral thing like a puff of smoke, you can see it's still a problem, Jake. So it helps a lot. But, but not as an excuse to, to still bring thousands of people together in the middle of a pandemic. That's still a bad idea, Jake. And we have seen specific Trump rallies uh, linked to specific cases of coronavirus, especially in Minnesota, where the contact tracing, the Department of Health there seems to be pretty good. And we know that according to the Washington Post, uh, the Trump uh, campaign lied to officials in Duluth uh, about what they were going to do in terms of following state coronavirus uh, guidelines. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't abide by them. And now that, that rally has been linked to at least three cases. We know a previous rally in that state in a different city got 20 people sick, two hospitalized. As the president continues these rallies at this frenetic pace, five days before the election, what's your message to those who are attending them? Don't go. Don't, don't go to these rallies. I mean, look, you know, just about anywhere in the country now, if you go to a gathering that's several hundred people, uh, it's, it's without a doubt the virus is attending that rally with you. If you are clustered close together, you don't know who's carrying the virus, you don't know how many people are carrying the virus. If you're not wearing a mask, you know, all, all the things that we're talking about, you're putting yourself at risk. What would be my advice if you've already attended one of these rallies is that you have to assume that you've been exposed at this point. I would say that you should quarantine yourself for, for 14 days. You're going home to your family, to your friends. Uh, you may infect community members, whatever it may be. If you go to an event like that right now with the amount of virus that is spreading in this country, you have to assume that you've had some sort of exposure and take the, the appropriate action so that you don't then subsequently spread the virus to others. And, and uh, we had Dave Matthews on uh, in the last hour. He was talking about how, as somebody who makes his living... Uh, going to concerts, going to venues, performing for thousands of people. He, he just sits there and can't even believe it because, A, he would never subject 
his fans to such a risk, and B, he wouldn't be allowed to even if he wanted to. The venues wouldn't open for him, but obviously President Trump gets this special exemption. Yeah, that that, that is pretty remarkable. I mean, all these things, all these hypocrisies, right? I mean, Dave Matthews, other performers can't do this, but yet there's these rallies that Minnesota one you were just talking about, they had agreed that there'd be no more than 250 people there. There were more than 2,500, more than 10 times that. That was the violation. It wasn't just a marginal violation. It was exponential. And, and you know, we're telling we're telling people they should not be with their families for Thanksgiving this year because of the potential risk. And the White House is having events at their house. You know, I mean, it, it is there, there's a lot of hypocrisies here. And obviously it's sending the wrong message because I still get tons of emails and, and things like that saying, hey, this seems like it's OK. It seems like this thing is over. We're seeing these types of events. We're, we're seeing what's happening at the White House. Why can't we do the same thing? The White House Coronavirus Task Force said in one of its weekly state reports, quote, we continue to see unrelenting broad community spread in the Midwest, upper Midwest and the West. This will require aggressive mitigation to control both the silent asymptomatic spread and the symptomatic spread. How did things get so bad in those regions? Well, there was a lot of virus that was spreading in these areas. I mean, you remember that there were these sort of waves that were moving across the country. And I think a lot of people uh, in the Midwest, um, aside from Michigan, which did get uh, affected pretty early on, many other places thought maybe we dodged this. They didn't. The virus was still spreading. People were moving from other parts of the country. But then the weather got cooler, Jake. People started migrating increasingly indoors. Again, if you imagine, I wish people could see the virus because you imagine that puff of smoke in an indoor area, poorly ventilated, if people aren't wearing masks, that's when it can really start start to spread even more rapidly. Extended family gatherings, bringing neighbors inside your home. People let their guard down and the cold weather is not going to help. It's going to really um, make this more difficult as we go forward. So right now you're seeing hospital problems more so in the north than the south, but as the weather gets cooler around the country, you're going to see that migra- migrating down to the south as well. Sometimes I think about the, the virus as being like in, being in a restaurant and somebody at the far end of the restaurant lights a cigarette and like a minute or two later, you're like, is somebody smoking in here? Right. Because it's worked its way all the way over to you, right? I mean, that's how it works. That's right. And, and that, that concept that you just described, the sort of airborne transmission, that wasn't clear in the beginning. You know, we've learned a lot over the last several months. It was thought mostly respiratory droplets, but then the science became clear that this can spread airborne. And what that means is it can suspend in the air. It can linger longer. It can travel further. Just like you say, you know, uh, cigarettes, a campfire, that puff of smoke, however you want to envision it. If you envision that in your, in your mind, I think you will automatically, hopefully, do things to protect yourself. Wear a mask, people. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. The Trump administration accused of using millions of dollars meant for a COVID ad campaign to help the president's reelection. Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy joins me next to talk about that. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, new documents reveal the Trump administration's $250 million ad campaign to rebrand the coronavirus and that that money was actually being used in part to help President Trump's 
re-election campaign. Documents released by House Democrats on the Oversight Committee found that Michael Caputo, the top Health and Human Services official who oversaw the ad blitz, who has since resigned, reportedly sought to frame the taxpayer-funded ad campaign as a way to boost the president's chances of re-election, according to the Democrats. And with me now, Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He's a member of the House Oversight Committee and a Democrat from Illinois. Congressman, tell me exactly what your committee found. We found two things, Jake. Uh, first of all, the Trump administration tried to use $250 million of taxpayer money that was otherwise dedicated at the CDC for um, education-related purposes to uh, deal with the COVID pandemic on basically what amounted to a slush fund uh, for the campaign of the president to get reelected. Um, and then the second thing that we found is that they basically compiled a Joseph McCarthy-esque list of celebrities, 274 of them, and they evaluated them based on their political preferences. Uh, for instance, about Christina Aguilera, they said she is, quote, an Obama-supporting Democrat and a gay rights-supporting liberal. And these types of comments pervade the documents, and it's uh, something I've never seen in a government contract. I mean, that is an accurate description of Christina Aguilera, but let, let me ask you a question. It's, it's not an insult. She is a, a gay rights-supporting liberal and an Obama-supporting Democrat. How do you see this as being used for the president's re-election as opposed to an education campaign about what needs to be done in order to help defeat the pandemic? Well, uh, these particular ads were not meant to, for instance, encourage mask wearing or social distancing, but rather to promote the theme, uh, quote, helping the president will help the country. That's a slogan that you might see in the former Soviet Union or even Russia today, not in the U.S., uh, and not cer certainly in a public service announcement. With regard to Aguilera and the others, Adam Levine and Justin Timberlake and so forth, repeatedly those comments were meant to essentially uh, diminish or denigrate them uh, as people that could be used in public service announcements. Typically, you would evaluate them based on you know, whether they would be uh, an effective spokesperson to the target audience in question, not right. whether they support Donald Trump. Yeah, no, or support I don't, gay rights. I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that it's not it's not denigrating necessarily to say somebody's. A, I understand what you're saying. Um, you're also accusing Alex Azar, who's the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, of a cover up. Um, how so? What do your documents suggest that he knew about the plans for this? Well, uh, this particular campaign. Uh, of television advertisements was essentially supposed to start in the run-up to the uh, re-election, which, as you know, is happening next Tuesday. Um, we, uh, early on, uh, working with uh, Jim Clyburn and Carolyn, Carolyn Maloney of the Oversight Committee, uh, brought this to Alex Azar's attention very early on in September and basically demanded documents from him related to this particular contract. He refused to comply with those requests for document. Instead, we, we had to go to the contractors to get these very documents. And now we know why Mr. Azar or Secretary Azar did not produce the documents, because they, they have such inappropriate material in them that um, I don't think they wanted to turn those over to us. So this was $250 million for an ad campaign. You said it was... Uh, out of a specific budget for educational campaigns for the public, right? This money could not have been used for 
testing or contact tracing it was designated for this. Was it ever used? They, don't, they didn't do this, this ad campaign. Did they ever use it for anything else? Fortunately, we were able to stop the campaign in its tracks. However, the contract has not been killed. And so it is possible that the money could be used after the election. Um, but as of right now, it's been paused. Um, we hope to terminate it. And I, actually, I've introduced legislation to prohibit the use of taxpayer-funded money for this type of purpose, this type of political purpose, um, because that's ab- obviously not what the taxpayers want. Did you have a script of the ad? I mean, what were they supposed to say uh, in this ad as opposed to the messages that would be good, such as wear a mask, practice distancing, wash your hand, that sort of thing? Well, they were meant to, quote, inspire hope and defeat despair. That was the general theme, and those words would repeat repeatedly, uh, presumably, appear in these commercials. Um, however, as you know, right now, uh, we need to defeat the coronavirus pandemic. And that means adopting mitigation measures such as wearing masks and socially distancing. And it, it kind of um, is part of the theme that the president is sounding in his reelection campaign, which is, you know, trying to diminish what's happening with the pandemic, uh, diminishing uh, the scale of the loss economically or from a health standpoint, and um, trying to distract attention away from it uh, to other themes. And that's what's uh, happening with this particular campaign. One other thing I want to mention, two other things I want to mention briefly, which is um, this also seems to coincide at a time when the president's uh, fundraising was flagging. He didn't have the resources necessarily to run the campaign that he thought he would. And mm-hmm. so this advertising campaign seemed to start at the same time uh, using taxpayer-funded uh, uh, programming to uh, basically further a yeah. political end. And then the second is, you can go to our uh, Twitter handle, at Congressman Raja, to see all the other comments that have been made about the 274 celebrities on this list that they compiled. It sounds like uh, the, the, the ad campaign being proposed sounds like everything is awesome from the, from the Lego movie, that kind of like, <laughs> you know, uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, Democratic Congressman uh, Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Coming up, the new number about the economy that President Trump is bragging about, but it might not be all that it seems in context. That's next. Stay with us. And our money lead today, a bit of a bounce on Wall Street on the heels of good economic report today. Moments ago, the Dow closed up 139 points. The U.S. economy grew at an annualized rate of 33 percent between July and September. That is the fastest third quarter rise on record. Of course, the context is important. It comes after the biggest economic contractions on record, too, because of the pandemic and more than 10 million Americans remain out of work. There is still no stimulus deal to help the unemployed or small business owners or state and local governments to get through the rest of this pandemic. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Julia, sure, this report's good news, but the record growth is in the middle of a pandemic. We are climbing back, but we had gone down to a very low point. You said it. This is a record growth number that follows a record collapse in the second quarter. And the truth is that we're still not back to levels that we were at before the COVID crisis hit. You also have to remember this is an annualized number. What this means is it looks at growth and how it would be if this rebound continued for an entire year. I wish it would. It simply won't. The fact is you have to look at the quarterly growth number, which is around 7.5%. It's still great, but it's a lot smaller 
smaller in terms of the number than you would think. We bought this recovery ultimately with stimulus checks, with the bump up in unemployment benefits, none of which was agreed by Congress in time. So the truth is, is as we push through the fourth quarter, the risk is that this quarter's number looks a lot, lot weaker than that. And that will Julia, we also us. got um, some new unemployment numbers today, 751,000 right. Americans filing for unemployment benefits for the first time last week. Now, that number is trending down. That's good news, but it's still incredibly high versus before the pandemic. It's true, and it's just not the full picture. This 750,000 people is the number that we talk about on a weekly basis. What you also have to add in here is a further 350. 9,000 people that got pandemic unemployment assistance. It's a different program. Bottom line, over 1.1 million Americans asked the government for help in just the last week alone. Here it is. We have recovered two thirds of the growth that we lost in the first half of this year, Jake, but we've only recovered half of the jobs. We go into now the winter months, the pandemic is accelerating, and we are in a far weaker position than we were this time back in March. That's what the next government has to contend with. All right. Julian Chatterley, thank you so much. President Trump is taking credit for the economic growth. He says next year will be fantastic under him, while Joe Biden says we are headed for the worst economic downturn in decades. CNN's Christina Aleshi looked at their messages on the economy as we continue our series this week, looking at the Candu's candidates and where they stand on major issues. I was looking at some of those big, once incredible job-producing factories, And my wife, Melania, said, what happened? I said, those jobs have left Ohio. They're all coming back. They're all coming back. In 2016, Trump ran on an America First platform to revitalize U.S. manufacturing and bring back jobs. Today, in the battleground state of Ohio, where the unemployment rate is higher than the national average, job growth in manufacturing has been anemic and the pandemic has wiped out even those small gains. Now voters are weighing whether Trump Our economy is booming, wages are soaring or former Vice President Joe Biden Those at the top are seeing things go up and those in the middle and below are seeing things go down will create more jobs in all sectors an issue that's even more pressing because the country still hasn't recovered almost 11 million jobs that it lost as the pandemic slammed the economy. Trump has promised two things, spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure, which means better roads, bridges, tunnels and highways, and keeping his 2017 tax cuts that largely favor the wealthy and corporations. Now looking ahead, more tax cuts and regulatory rollback will be in store Payroll tax cuts for higher wages, income tax cuts for the middle class. The president's tax cuts will also cost an estimated $1.9 trillion over a decade, and even more if he makes them permanent, as promised. Under President Trump, the benefits would go to uh, corporations and higher income well-to-do households. Hello, everyone. Biden wants to raise taxes on those making over $400,000 a year. Time and again, working families are paying the price for this administration's incompetence. The former vice president is also proposing $7.3 trillion in spending, including on infrastructure, which calls for creating 10 million clean energy jobs, as well as education, health care, and housing. President Biden, the benefits go right to lower middle-income households, minority groups. 
Jake, Trump and Biden's economic agendas could not be more different. Mark Zandi, that economist that spoke in the piece, tried to estimate the impact of their policies on job creations and found that Biden would create 18.6 million jobs over his four-year first term, while Trump would create 11.2. That seven million difference, that seven plus million difference is a big difference that also assumes that Congress would be controlled by their own parties and they can get those policies executed. Jake? All right, Christina Leshy, thanks so much. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.